Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, music nerds. Welcome back to the show. This is episode... 91 with my guest Sarah Jaros. Very excited to have her on today. Been trying to get her on for a while, as a matter of fact. So there you go. Uh, today's show is brought to you by Union Tube and Transistor, making killer guitar pedals and other exciting, strange, and wonderful electronic devices out of Vancouver, BC, and also from Vancouver, BC. Black Mountain Picks, making these crazy spring-loaded thumb picks that I'm using right now and really digging them. So thanks to those guys for sponsoring the show, and uh, please head on over to our uh, Instagram page and Facebook pages and all that, and uh, follow us there. That would be much appreciated, and we have a new website up at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So head over there, and that has the entire catalog of all 91 episodes. can't believe it's coming up on 100 episodes. That is bizarre and crazy. Never really thought that that would happen. Anyway, it's wonderful to have Sarah Jaros on the show this week. She has a brand new album out called World on the Ground that you should check out. And uh, let's just get a little bit of business taken care of here. If you would like to skip all the mumbo jumbo that I talk about at the beginning with callers and other creative ideas and whatnot, uh, feel free to jump right in. It's at about 14 minutes. So first of all, things are starting to um, open up, as we all know here, to varying degrees, depending on what country you're living in. And uh, things are getting just a little too crazy for me to be able to keep this show up on a weekly basis. So I'm going to switch this over to bi-weekly now. Uh, We were going monthly before. I switched to weekly, and that's great. And uh, I've been able to do that during all the quarantine and downtime 
but things are, I mean, I wouldn't say they're picking up. I am definitely a little bit screwed for, for work, but I'm doing a lot of remote recording. I'm doing this Hen House Express thing where we record songs for people from top to bottom. And all those things are taking up a lot of time. And that's what I have to focus on, you know, to make some money. So I'm going to flip this over to bi-weekly, which uh, I think suits people well anyway. That's, um, it's still a lot of podcast to listen to. So I will be coming at you bi-weekly starting uh, two weeks from today. So we'll have this episode today and then we go to the two-week program after that. So we'll see you two weeks from today for the next episode. As you know, we are essentially a listener-supported podcast and I could use your help in keeping the show going if you are a fan of the show and you would like to support it. I support your decision to support the show. <laughs> and you can do that in a couple of ways. You can become a Patreon subscriber, which is a monthly subscription, and you pay an amount of your choice, or you can make a one-time donation. You can do both of those through makersandshakerspodcast.com, which is the new website. Just go there, and up in the top right corner, there's a donate button, and there's links to both ways that you can do that. Or you can buy a t-shirt uh, any of that stuff helps out, and it would be greatly appreciated. And as a matter of fact, with the Patreon subscriptions, I've started this new thing that's just sort of a little fun thing that you get as a as a Patreon subscriber only, where I take tracks from a record that I worked on over the years and pull up the individual tracks and just talk about the session. And whether you know the song or not, uh, it's I think it'll be interesting just to hear about how how certain songs are recorded and techniques and sounds and things like that. So I'm going to be doing that every two weeks as well. And that is available if you become a Patreon subscriber. And I would like to thank some of the listeners that kicked in over the last week or two. I really appreciate your contributions. Those people are Joe Lanza, Ron Powell, Dario Bisego, Bisego. That's a tough one. I'm sorry, Dario. I did my best. Mark Giusponi. I think I got that right. Kenneth David Eckert, who I know. Hazel Bennett. Hello, Hazel. Gary Wright. And um, our contest win. Oh, our contest. Right. So we're giving away a union tube and transistor pedal last week. And I gave it away to Dan Whitehouse. So to caller, people that are callers to the show automatically get their name thrown into a hat and I pick the names out. All they have to do is uh, get in touch with me to get their prize. But the contest winner for a union pedal last week was Dan Whitehouse, and he did not get in touch with me. So maybe he didn't listen to the episode. This was from two weeks ago, the Sadler Vaden episode, and he did not contact me. So I'm going to give him one more week, and if he does not contact me, I'm going to reopen that part of the contest and give away a union tube and transistor pedal, guitar pedal, to somebody else. So come on, Dan, get your act together. The other giveaway is I'm giving away a couple of Black Mountain thumb picks every week, and this week... The name that came up is Bruce from Portland, and he called in, I don't know, five or six, seven weeks ago or something, and uh, he didn't leave his last name, but he's from Portland, and his name is Bruce. So if your name is Bruce, and you're from Portland, and you want some thumb picks, give me a shout. Uh, so you can contact me uh, through the website or at um, stevedawson.ca. Drop me a line. Get your prizes. But I'm still inviting people to call in if you would like, and uh, you can be a musician or not, and just tell me how things have affected you and, and what's happening and what's new in your life. Um, I, I'm finding it very fascinating to hear from people, you know, both that are involved in the music racket and that are just fans of music and how things are changing and shifting for them. So you can call in anytime and leave a message at 615-375-6318. 
or leave me an email you can record your own message and just email it to me at steve at the com. And it's cool. I'm getting lots of music listening suggestions and um, some creative ideas. And actually, you know, I thought I would mention the way that I'm working right now with these friends of mine, I have a friend Gary Craig in Toronto and Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, and we're doing these songs for people where we all record them. And we've got this really intense uh, way of of working, and if you're uh, a recording person at all, and you want to check this stuff out, it's pretty crazy. So we're actually incorporating three pieces of software <laughs> that allow me to engineer from afar. So I'm I'm able to engineer the drums and the bass sessions, and hear it in real time with uncompressed audio, and communicate with the people. But there's no program that does that. But there are three programs when you put them together that do it. So one of them is called Audio Movers, and it's a plugin, and you put it on Pro Tools, and it sends, as long as your internet connection is half decent, it sends a stream of high-quality audio. And so that's how I can hear what's going on uh, in a different city. And then I use a program called AnyDesk, which lets me take over the person who I'm recording. I take over their computer and I become the engineer in their room. So that's awesome. And then we use OneDrive, which is a Microsoft cloud type drive. And that basically, as the dr- like say, as the drums are being recorded, his files are being uploaded in real time to this um, shared folder. And by the time I open it at my house, they're downloaded. So it's almost like you're just in another room with the same person. So that's what we're doing, and I would highly recommend any of those pieces of software. But the most interesting one is Audio Movers, and that's the plugin that allows you to hear things in real time. Okay, a couple music recommendations for you this week. I've been giving those out. I don't know if you dig them or not. Here's a couple oldies. It's just stuff I've been listening to, aside from the new Sarah Jarosa record, which I have been listening to, and it's killer. But uh, th- that aside, first off, Rycooter's first record. I'm sure people have listened to Rycooter. You know, if you've listened, if you're a fan of this show, you've probably heard some Rycooter in your life. His first record kind of gets overlooked. It's just called Rycooter, and it's a picture of him with an Airstream trailer on the front. I believe it's the first song, Alimony. Go have a listen to Alimony. It is like textbook, the most killer rhythm guitar, electric rhythm guitar playing, I think, almost that's ever been recorded right there on that song, right from the first note of that record, the first recorded piece of that guy's career. It doesn't get any better than that for me. It sounds amazing, and it's so funky and happening. Uh, so check out that. That's that's Alimony off Raghuja's first record. And then I've been listening to quite a bit of NRBQ this week. You guys know NRBQ? You should. They're pretty awesome. Uh, there's a great album. I don't know. They're, they're all they're all great. Uh, there's there's one called At Yankee Stadium, which it sort of implies that it's a live album, but it's not a live album, and it's so great. And this band in the at the height of their powers was so happening. Big Al Anderson on guitar is like got the funkiest rhythm thing going, and the bass player Joey Spompanato, who the rumor has it he was asked to join the Rolling Stones when uh, Bill Wyman left. And he turned them down. And he actually ended up marrying this woman that I went to college with. And apparently they live in Nashville, and apparently he's not doing well. I've not seen him or met him or anything. But anyway, that's NRBQ. That's the New Rhythm and Blues Quartet. And they're just so great. So that's it. Those are my recommendations for you this week. Nothing new except for Sarah's new record, which we're going to talk about in depth. So I'm not going to talk about it now. Let's get on to this week's show, Sarah Jarose. 
So there's a little bit of a disconnect here on this show in that I had not heard her new record yet. It was not out when we did it. We did this interview maybe three or four weeks ago. Only one single was out and I had not heard the rest of it. So there's a lot of talk about the record coming out soon. There's a lot of talk about me n- having not heard the record, which is unusual because usually I know the records that we're talking about really well. That's almost irrelevant, except for the fact that we're talking a lot about a record about to come out, and it is now out. So it's called World on the Ground. It's amazing. She's amazing. Make sure you go check it out. Buy some vinyl. Buy are there CDs? I don't know. Buy a CD if you want. Download it. Stream it. Do it. Do what you need. Uh, she made it with John Leventhal, which is very exciting. I'm a big fan of his. And um, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Sarah Jarose. This is generally a monthly show, but I've, I've, I've been doing it weekly during all this, partly because I have more time on my hands, I guess, but also just because there's a bit of demand, like more demand for it. But I'm pretty curious about how creative types are um, filling their time right now because everyone's sort of locked in at home and some people are being really active and creative and some people are not at all. Um, I talked to Jim Campolongo a couple weeks ago and I found it really interesting that he basically felt no creativity at all. It was kind of stressed out. And so he's like developing like weird guitar arpeggios to keep his hands in shape. And that's about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what's happening with you? Um, it, You know, it's actually, I mean, Jim is so amazing. I'm, I'm such a fan of his. It, it's interesting to hear him say that. And it slightly comforts me because I've been me feeling too. a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, especially I feel like at, at the beginning um, of all of this, I, the timing for me is interesting because I just finished making a record um, yeah. over the over the course of the past year. So, you know, I'm coming from a place of having just had this outpouring of intense creativity, basically, for a year straight. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even before that, like, just I was on the road with I'm With Her pretty much nonstop for like two years. And that was a really creative time. And we were writing a bunch and, and working on music together in a collaborative way that I hadn't really done before. So the timing of this is like kind of crazy because I, I haven't been feeling um, super creative because I, I do feel like I just got a lot out of me. And, and in general, I feel like I kind of work in phases mm-hmm. with creativity anyways, where I'll sort of have get really inspired after a period of not (laughs) being super creative and then, you know, have an outpouring and then sort of go about my life or, or which, which generally means focus on touring, you know, like after, after you make a record, after you um, get really into a project, then you take it on the road. And um, so, yeah, it's, I've, I definitely have been struggling to sort of, and even with, little like you know there's so like you said there's more demand for your podcast with there's so so much demand for live streams and video content right now it's it's definitely taking my brain um it's it's a lot more work for my brain to kind of shift into performance mode (laughs) from just being in house mode all the time yeah um yeah, so it, it's been a struggle for sure, but I'm trying, I feel like a couple of weeks ago, I got over a little hump with it, and, mm-hmm. you know, a couple people are reaching out, like like John Leventhal, actually, who I just made my record with, um, reached out about trying to write remotely, and um, so, oh, you cool. know, little, little, little baby steps. <laughs> yeah, so have you been 
doing a bunch of performing or are you sort of shying away from that? No, I, I am, inevitably I am, be, um, you know, because my record is still coming out on June 5th. Um, okay. So that, you know, I was supposed to be announcing this, these big tours in the summer yeah. and, um, and all the stuff that comes along with putting a record out, um, interviews and listening parties and all that stuff. So we're, I'm, I'm definitely like, so excited for people to hear this music and I in a way that I just I kind of wish it was just out already like Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's still another month um but just trying to be creative in in how to let people know about it and engage people with the music because I know that what I try to keep reminding myself in the moments of when I'm not feeling creative is like okay everyone's going through this and as cliche as it sounds like it I think that it will be good for people to like have this music in, in their homes and around their ears and, yeah. you know, so, so just, just kind of working through that, just from like a, a planning um, businessy kind of point of view, does it ever come up that you would delay a record in this situation or it, was that not really an option? You know, it came up. I, I think when it came up because I, I'm trying to think. Um, so I, I live in, New York. Um, and I got out of this city on March 13th. So like, a, basically a week before this all started getting crazy. Um, and I'm actually here in Nashville. My boyfriend lives here oh, okay. and is a musician. Um, so I'm very thankful and grateful that I had another place to go, um, to get out of the city. But yeah, my no first, kidding. my, so the timeline of that was like, you know, my first single what came out on March 24th. And so it was really like between the time that I left on March 13th and the 24th, it was just to be really kind of the beginning of all this. And that was when we were kind of having the conversation of like, do we delay the record? Like, what do we do? And I think none of us were, would, there was no way for any of us to know the the length of this or, or how bad it would get. And so at that time, you know, I made the decision to just move ahead and, and, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm still glad about that. Yeah. But it's definitely not a bad decision. It's just like, it's, uh, it's a little unknown. Exactly. I mean, I, I have seen people are like, I noticed the Dixie chicks just postponed their record. Yeah. Their record was supposed to come out on Friday and they postponed it indefinitely. Like that band time, they, postponed you know and because kind of as as this moved along i was thinking like well there's no way i can postpone it because the first single is already out um but those are two examples of bands that had already released their first single and videos and stuff and then still made the decision to postpone the release of their record so you know i i just i feel like that in terms of the momentum of the creativity behind the project and everything I wouldn't want to put this off. Like it, it, it needs to just, I think that's the music too, still yeah. needs to be out there, you know, and it's, it's related in time to when it was created also in it a would, way. It would, it would be super weird to put out a record. I think like 18 months after it's done, like it would just feel like really deflating, I think. Yeah. Well, it's funny because that's what um, I, we did with I'm with her um, really? for our first record. Yeah. I mean, that was totally kind of based around all of our crazy schedules yeah, when I we bet. were, when we were trying to figure out how, like if it was even possible really to sort of become a band um, because we decided to become a band 
like six months before all three of us were putting out solo records. Yeah. Um, so drive your managers crazy. I bet. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so we, but again, like kind of relating it back to the creative energy and momentum because it was exciting and it was new. We wanted to record the record, um, and capture that, um, energy in the recording. And so we, we basically went right into the studio, like wrote a bunch of songs. Three weeks later, we were in England, you know, recording the record. And then, and then that was like the beginning of 2016. And all three of us released our solo records and toured behind those for almost a full two years before. Oh, wow. It it actually, I think it was a full two. Yeah. Cause it was, um, 20 February of 2018 was when our record came out. Was that weird? It totally was weird. Like I, I had never with, with all of my solo records, like it was pretty standard where you kind of finish the record and then turn it into the label. And four months later it's released. Um, so it was weird, but I think we all did a pretty good job. The thing that I think would have made it harder is I have the tendency, like when I finish a record, I'm really excited about it and I it's all I really want to listen to. Hopefully that's that's the case because yeah. <laughs> you want to be pumped about it. Um and we all kind of made a pact with each other just to almost act like it didn't exist and oh, not wow, okay. listen to it. Yeah. And um and then when we did start to kind of like go back down that road the closer it got to the release it still felt new to us um and in the end we were glad that we captured that we recorded and waited rather than waited and recorded (laughs) i guess right right um yeah you gotta strike when the iron's hot a little bit with creativity i think and if everyone's feeling like it's time to record even if it's not ideal i guess it's time Totally, totally. Um, You've kind of opened a few cans of worms, but maybe we could just jump on the new record, which I don't know that much about because it's not out yet. And there's only one single, which I've heard, and it's awesome. Um, But the album's called World on the Ground, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, from the one song that I've heard, it's pretty wildly different from your other records. Um, And I'm excited that you're working with John Leventhal because I'm a big fan of his. And I can definitely hear the Leventhal influence, but but it's like wildly different direction. So... Tell me about what uh, the the process was for making this record. Totally. It's funny because as like a record, the record as a whole doesn't feel like a wildly different direction, but okay. I could see how that one track would definitely feel that way. Okay. I mean, John really pushed me and it, and it is, I, I, I do feel like from record to record on my first four records, you know, it was kind of incremental growth whereas mm-hmm. this this does feel like the most you're right in in that sense like the the most kind of like okay I'm taking a big leap um and a big part of that is the fact that I worked with the same producer on all right. four of my first records so this is my first time as a solo artist working with a new producer um and you know it, it it just felt like really natural, nice timing in that way. Like Gary Petrosa and I, um, we're like family, (laughs) you know, we, we, he, Mm -hmm. he sort of became like, uh, when I couldn't be home with my actual family, like his house and his recording studio, like he became like almost like a second father to me. Um, and that was such a great chapter of, of my life. And I, I learned so much from him. Um, and then it felt, it felt really right to sort of almost 
in that that creative time with Gary have this pause for my own stuff with I'm with her and kind of shift gears into being in a band, yeah. which I, I had never been in before. And it was just so fun to like be a teammate. And then like when that was done, I felt really creatively excited and ready um, to, to write my own songs again. And, you know, I think the, the one thing about working with Gary is that he's, he's not a musician, you know, he doesn't play in terms of his role as a producer. Like he's not coming into the studio laying tracks down or playing an instrument. You know, he's, he doesn't play anything. No, no, no. He's, he's like, he's strictly on the engineer. Like he's a brilliant engineer and producer. And so he's on that side of things. So I definitely knew, um, that this time around, I, I think, maybe coming from working with Sarah and Aoife and, and realizing how much I loved the collaborative nature of like digging in with in, in the studio setting with people who can play. I was like, well, it'd be fun to work with a producer who is also a musician um, and who I can play with mm-hmm. in the studio. Um, and I mean, John, it's a, it's a whole different trip. Yeah, exactly. Um, and John, I mean, he's one of my biggest heroes. Like he has been for so long. I mean, the the Sean Colvin records that he made are yeah, they're great. Eh? You know, some of my favorite music in the world. Yeah. Um, and so I think probably because of those records, he was kind of always at the top of my list. Did you know him? Like, had you had a relation with relationship going back with him, or were you approaching him out of the blue? Well, it was. It definitely felt like I was kind of approaching him out of the blue. We we knew each other and we had run into each other and he actually had played um, guitar on a song of mine uh, a few records ago, um, oh, okay. a song called a song called Runaway. Yeah. Um, but he he had like done the overdub from New York, so we weren't like in the studio when that happened. You know, we had run into each other at like Americana Fest and um, yeah. he had. I think Gary and him are friends. So I think Gary had invited him to a show of mine in New York one time at Rockwood Music Hall. And I think he says that that's the first place we met. Um, so that would have been in like 2011 or something. Okay. Um, so we were we were friendly, but like didn't really know each other. And then um, kind of a turning point for me was our uh, at the Americana Music Awards um, when I'm with her was playing on the award show, our sound checks were back to back with, it was us and then Roseanne and John. Um, and for, for anyone who's listening, Roseanne Cash, that is John, John is married to Roseanne Cash. Um, and it was kind of my first time being in the room with him, seeing him work with other musicians. He was playing piano, on that song with her and there were strings, I think, and he was music directing the whole band. And I just loved the way that he was communicating with the musicians. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I hadn't seen him play piano before and it it was cool to like, cause all the stuff I had seen him do was guitar based. Um, so, and you know, cause we had just finished our sound check. I was like sitting in the pew at the Ryman watching, them sound check and watching him kind of lead the whole thing. And I was like, man, I, I love how he's doing this. I love how he's sort of leading everyone. And that was like the moment when I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to ask him to produce my record. Oh, cool. um, I can't remember exactly the timeline, but fast forward to December of 2018. Um, 
I he I reached out to him and I wound up going down to his studio in Chelsea in Manhattan, which is where we made the record. It's it's his home studio. And um, we had like a couple meetings just to get get the vibe, because like I said, we didn't really know each other. And mm-hmm. it was important to him to sort of make sure that, you know, it was going to be a, <laughs> a good match because you yeah. can yeah. you can like fantasize about working with someone forever and then you get in the room and you're like oh actually this isn't a good vibe as a jerk um yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but it was great and 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 sort of the initial at that initial meeting i played him a couple ideas that i had been messing around with and he the main piece of advice that he gave me was like as you kind of work on your songs try to think about changing your outlook or your perspective a little bit. Like, like all of my songwriting up until that, up until this record, I feel like has been very um, introspective and sort of analyze, analyzing my feelings and trying to sort of make poetry out of that. Yeah. Which is cool. Like that's one way to do it. But he sort of, like the floodgates just opened when he said that because he was like, you know, it doesn't, the the perspective doesn't all have to be from you. Like you can tell us, you can be a storyteller and sort of have, try writing a story song from somebody else's perspective, even if you're telling your story, you know, just as, just as an exercise. Like, um, so that's kind of, there's, there's a couple like Johnny, the first single that's out is that's, a yeah, name song. Um, the there's a I've couple heard. of other, name songs on the record like Eve and Maggie um so I don't know I and and that sort of awakened me to the realization of most of my favorite music in general but especially as of late has been diving back into my love for Texas singer-songwriters you know like Guy Clark and um James McMurtry Sean Colvin Nancy Griffith um Towns Van Zandt. I mean, those people are no no strangers to to character driven songs. Exactly, exactly. So I kind of after that first meeting, I went back and realized, like, well, this is all the music I'm listening to right now. Anyways, like, I'm so inspired by it. Um, but I'm thinking about it in a different way as an adult who's left Texas, um, as opposed to when I was hearing it for the first time when I was a kid when I was living there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Um, I don't know, that just really, that sort of became the focus of, of a lot of the songs was sort of this looking back um, on growing up in Texas and realize, realizing that I had never really written about that before. And, and like Texas mm-hmm. just is such a huge part of me and it's it's my home, it's where I grew up. And it, it's sort of funny how something could just be, an idea can just be kind of floating there and right. you don't notice it until someone says one very simple thing. And then it's sort of like, you're like, Oh, it's right here. (laughs) I I didn't see it. And it was here the whole time. It also helps having that time to separate yourself. I think from like early influences, like you might hear a Guy Clark or a Towns Van Zandt song now in a totally different way than you did when you were 14 or something. Oh my gosh. A hundred percent, you know, just, just, I, I even remember having that with John Prine songs when I was little. Um, I just had that again like, with John Prine. Like, it hit, <laughs> for me, it hit like a new level again. Like I've heard yeah. all the records, but then I went back and it was like, oh, this is like, this is something totally that I didn't get out of it 
10 years ago when I last yeah. really dug in deep. Yeah, he's he's kind of the master of that. But I even I even mean it to like um, I I remember being a little little kid, like like probably six, five or six, and my parents playing John Prine records and just kind of being like, really, like you guys are listening to this? Like I don't it it, it sounds like because the music is so simple, like it, it almost sounded funny to me. And I, and then they would be crying while they were listening to these funny sounding songs, <laughs> like. Yeah. And then of course, like you you have to live some life to, to get that, like, oh no, these are the most profound, um, things that can possibly Mm -hmm. be written, (laughs) you know? So, but so that was a lot of digging back into that, the Texas wealth of, um, songwriters. So just staying on the new record before we, before we may, maybe we could steer into talking about your, your upbringing in Texas, but, but just staying on the new record, are there some instrumentals on it? Like what else is in there that, that we're in for? I don't usually talk to people about records that I haven't heard, so it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, no instrumentals. Okay. Um, it's 10 songs. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it mostly, it, all the instruments are, I would say the majority of the playing is just me and John um, kind of layering oh, cool. a bunch of stuff. Um, it's definitely, uh, I would say... Well, it's funny because it still feels like an acoustic record to me. Acoustic meaning no drums, but yep. there's drums, I think, on every song but one song. Um, Does he play drums? Which he plays drums, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I really felt that his drumming was kind of perfect for... So just so you know, my relationship with drums and my recorded music, I've been very hesitant to include drums yeah on but i was gonna of- ask you about some of that actually yeah because they do yeah. sneak they sneak in there now and again but but very subtly and and then there'll be like a song where they're they're on and then they're gone again for the record rest of the record. totally yeah totally and a lot of the early stuff was um like kenny malone like i, I i'm I was very drawn, I think, from listening to a lot of like Tim O'Brien uh-huh. records, like Cornbread Nation or Fiddler's Green. Like, I was drawn early on to like the. I just felt like symbols were always too much. <laughs> like, yeah. I I wanted just the kind of percussion to sort of give this oomph without noticing that it's necessarily there. Um, and so much so that like on uh, during while I was making Undercurrent. It like Gary and I wound up just sort of really disagreeing on if there should be percussion or on the record at all or not. Um, and it to the point that sort of almost all of the record was recorded, and he was really hearing it on a few songs, and and we recorded it as an overdub, and um, and then I I just ultimately had to go with my gut on it, and just because I hadn't written any of those songs with the drums in mind, yeah. and. Um, was it different this time? Like, did you have like for that song Johnny that does have drums on it? Uh, was it something that you that you wrote and you were like, yeah, this is gonna this is gonna kind of rock out? Or yes, okay. yes, it was it was totally different this time in that sense. Like where it it was, whereas in the past when I've been writing music, I've literally never heard, I've never had the drums in mind. <laughs> okay. um, and I think I think maybe a part of that has been you know I've been playing a lot on the show live from here with Chris Thiele um, over the past several years. And that's really the first time that I've had on a consistent, uh, in a consistent way to play with a drummer um, is on that show. And so I think maybe that was kind of 
part of it, just having the chance to be in a room working on right. music with the drummer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was definitely the first time I was like, I was writing all of these songs for the record and being like, oh yes, like I 100% hear drums on these. And and so I think John's John's coming at it from, he's he's primarily a guitar player. And so I think he had a really great way of sort of just sneaking in there. <laughs> but then there were a couple, there were two, tr- there are two tracks on the record that, um, the great Sean Pel- Pelton played oh, wow, uh, okay. d- drums yeah. when, when there would be a moment, like there's one song called I'll be gone that kind of rocks out a little bit more. And John was saying like, I think we just need an actual drummer to come in here and just like dig in, you know, Sean Pelton um, plays on those Sean Colvin records, right? Like fat. He does. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He does. He's incredible. And, um, I haven't heard actually, his name for a while. Is he, a, is he in New York? He's in New York. He is still, he has been the, house drummer for saturday night live for like 20 years or something um and he's still you can still see him um well i guess not right now because they're doing them all from home but um in the back there he's he's playing the drums on snl um but yeah he's i've I've had a couple of chances before we made our record to get to know sean so it wasn't like a total like the connection was there already right uh, which was nice um Tell me about like writing, like bringing a new song to John, and it's basically just the two of you there in the studio. Like, how did the tracks actually come together? Yeah, I kind of like to describe his studio setup as like it. It's like the control room of a spaceship or something. Where yeah. meaning that, like, there was never really any going into another room to track a vocal or to track something. Like we we pretty much were just in like the control room. I mean, the studio is small as it is like there's kind of the control room and then there's one other room where the drums and pianos and like a bunch of amps are set up and that's where he would record drums and piano. But this is in his house. This is like in the bottom floor of his, his, their house in Chelsea. Um, and yeah, so like a lot of it, honestly, like early on we would approach, them as if we were just recording demos and so meaning that like it was super not precious and his bass is plugged in um the amps are plugged in like everything is kind of ready to go at a moment's notice he has like all of his percussion sort of surrounding him and so i would just be sitting like literally next to him while he's at the computer I'm like in a squeaky chair (laughs) Um, with, you know, some mics and a guitar. And oftentimes he would mic my guitar and and also have it um, like even an acoustic guitar plugged in through an amp in the other room. And um, get a little grit on it. Yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of how we would start a lot. And then very quickly, you know, it's like throwing paint at at a canvas where he would be like, okay, I think... I think we need, you need to double that vocal or like throw a harmony on there. Okay. We're going to throw some mandolin on there. And, and it would just all happen super duper fast in a way that there was never really any, any time to even think about what was happening. And then we would get to the end of the day and be like, Oh, well that sounds great. <laughs> like, Amazing. And, and so I just, that was like a really freeing way to work for me because I think it's kind of the opposite of the way I've worked in the past where everything is sort of thought out ahead of time. And, um, 
and you're like, okay, I'm ready to sing my vocal now. I'm going to go stand behind the mic and, yeah. you know, um, which I will say I learned a lot from doing it that way. Like, I, I feel like I learned how to work a mic and, yeah. and sing in the studio. Um, but it was just so freeing this time to not really ever think about that, not think about mic placement really. Did a lot of the tracks that you did in that way without overthinking it and just like things were happening, is that what you ended up keeping too? Honestly, yes. I would say okay. like about 95% oh, wow. um, of the record percent. was, yes. <laughs> like it really, um, a lot of stuff is just like the first takes and, you know, occasionally we would, I feel like especially early on when we were still finding our vibe, like, you know, he would say something like, why don't you sing harmony to yourself on that line or in that chorus? And I would do it. And, and then we would kind of be like, okay, well maybe we'll eventually get somebody else to Mm -hmm. replace that part. Um, And then he, you know, the both of us together were kind of just like, well, we would just be trying to get someone um, to, to try to match exactly what you did. So if it sounds good, like why fight it just for the sake of bringing it, unless like guests are great. If you're like, Oh, I hear this person's timbre or this tone of this person's voice is just going to be the thing that like adds the magic to this track. But if you're just doing having guests for the sake of it, then it's not really serving the song. And um, you can do that when you're 60. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I don't know. It was just totally also he like the the schedule of the day was very different than I had ever worked before. Basically, when I was in town and I wasn't on the road, it was kind of like Monday to Friday, noon to six and like very. I like those hours. Yes. And like I whenever like in the past, Gary and I, because I was basically living at his house while we were making those records it was sort of like any time was fair game to work on the record, whether that yeah. was like in the morning or like three in the morning. And that's a fun way to do it too. If you're just like digging in and it sort is, of yeah. it like wrapping, you're, you're becoming like totally enveloped in the process, but I don't know. I, I, it's not for everybody. That's for sure. It's not for everybody. Um, or it's maybe just depending on where you are and like in your life. Like for me, I, I found this process to be so, um, exciting because I never, my ears never became exhausted. Like totally. sometimes the thing that can happen when you're in the studio all the time is you, you just kind of lose all sense of like, what is, what are we even doing? Like, I think that that guitar solo Fatigue. was terrible. Yeah, exactly. So I think the, the 12 to six sort of allowed me to like, all right, I'm getting on the subway to go home, but I really don't want to be leaving. And so I always felt really excited. Um, to be working on it. How long was that stage of, of working where you would go five days a week, noon to six? Well, it was a little scattered. I mean, there, there were really maybe only a couple times when it was like five days a week. Um, cause I was, this, this was all sort of in, interspersed with, I'm with her touring, yeah, um, at the end of last year. Um, so yeah, I think we started the record in May of last year, uh, which literally I thought that we were, that was just demos. And then of course that was like, we started with Johnny and 
another, a couple other songs, Hometown and Eve. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think there were like three days at the end of May, like four days in the beginning of July. And then it the bulk of it was sort of done in the fall when I was when the touring was kind of winding down. Um, so it, it wasn't really we weren't in the studio that many days. Um, I haven't added added it up but (laughs) i guess the time even though it's funny because like 12 to 6 doesn't sound like that long but those hours were very full (laughs) like just basically working nonstop. i mean we would occasionally like go grab lunch around the corner but even that was like very quickly executed (laughs) Uh, was the mixing involved in that process too or did he just do the mixing on his own and send you mixes he also did the mixing. I mean, he he was kind of mixing as as he went as we went cool. um, to the point that like when he finally did the mixing at the end of the process, it was it was pretty much there, you okay. know, just yeah. kind of sonic things to make it richer and stuff. So yeah, and so he was adding like his little tidbits as well, like at the same time that you were doing your tracks. Yeah, I mean, in general, he mostly. I think the thing he liked to avoid was me. Um, like whenever I was there, he wanted to make the most use of our time with me being there. So like I was, he. It was great in that sense. Like I, I don't ever feel like I was at the studio just like sitting on the couch, like waiting mm-hmm. to do something. <laughs> like I was always working. So there were times when you know he would wait to do something, a guitar part of his that he knew we both knew we wanted until I was gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. just so I wasn't sitting around and then we, you know, I would come back the next day and we would kind of, I would listen, we'd work through it. Yeah. Um, That's yeah. That's a great way to work. It's really cool. I've done some projects like that and, and it's, it is a totally different approach from, yeah. Sounds like from what you've done before, but kind of totally. refreshing and awesome. Oh man. I, I loved every minute of it. I can't wait to hear the rest of it. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I should send it to you. I'm sorry that I haven't already. That's all right. Um, <laughs> you mentioned growing up in Texas and, and the influence of, <clears throat> of Texas music and Texas writers. And I mean, you started super young. I know, like you're still young, but like you, you were playing professionally when you were like super young. Um, tell me a little bit about like getting into music in the first place and, and what your first instrument was and stuff like that. Well, I guess you know, singing is something that just has always been around for me. Um, it's just something I've kind of have done since I was like two, um, whether that be around the house, um, or like school performances and things like that. Um, were were your parents musical there? Yeah. Like they're, they're not, um, they weren't um, musicians in a professional way, but my mom, um, sings and plays guitar and when she was younger she wrote songs and I have like little cassette tapes of some of her songs Um, and my dad is just like the biggest music lover you could possibly ever come across basically Um, Are, are they big bluegrass fans I feel like we all kind of discovered bluegrass together a little okay. I mean I will say like they had they were super into like new grass revival okay. and they, I think they had gone to the Telluride bluegrass festival in like 1985 before I was born. Yeah. Um, and most, I think they went mostly because they heard that Dan Fogelberg was going to be like the special <laughs> guest and they, they're like the biggest Dan Fogelberg okay. fans. Um, so th- they were definitely aware of it, but uh, in terms of like an obsession with it, I think we all kind of came to it at the same time. And that was, 
pretty much rooted in Nickel Creek. Did you see them at, at Telluride too or something? Well, I saw them first at, um, there's a festival outside of Austin called Old Settlers Music Festival. Yeah. Um, and that was like, tw- so Wimberley is like 45 minutes kind of south of Austin. and That's where you're from, Wimber- Wimberley? That's where I'm from, yeah. Okay. Um, and Old Settlers was kind of in Driftwood, which a lot of people know the Salt Lick barbecue sure. restaurant. I've been um, there a few times. Yeah, so Old Settlers, it's not there. It's not at that location anymore. But for the entire time that I was growing up, um, it was at the Salt Lake, basically, oh, <laughs> like okay. across across the creek from the Salt Lake. Yeah. Um, and but the very first one that I ever went to was actually in Dripping Springs, uh, not far away, and that's where. So I would have been nine years old, about to turn ten, and my parents had bought me a mandolin. Um, the prior Christmas. And, um, did you want a mandolin? Was that a thing that you were into? I did want a mandolin. I had seen some nickel Creek music videos on CMT. (laughs) (laughs) Um, also like at that point in my life, I grew up going to Catholic church actually. And, um, music kind of became a big part of that. And so my mom and I would, she would play guitar and I would, um, sing with her. And then, Eventually, we were like, it'd be cool if we could play together. And so that all was sort of happening at the same time where I was seeing these Nickel Creek videos, wanting to play the mandolin. And then they got me the mandolin and she and I started playing music together at church. And um, and then we stopped going to church, basically. It's like as soon as my all my music started happening, we kind of, Something's I don't know. Go. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny, like simultaneously, um, it, it just, it all happened. I think my parents became a little disillusioned with it all and realized that they were going just because it was family tradition. Um, and all of the music events that they wanted to take me to were on the weekend. So, hey, um, you gotta do it. <laughs> so that's, that kind of, yeah, we stopped going to church and I started playing music. <laughs> cool. Good choice. Um, <laughs> Um, did you have like friends and stuff that were into it too? Like your, your own age or were you mostly playing with your folks? I was, so, so the, the Nickel Creek, um, I I was just going to say, I met them at that old settlers music festival, um, when I was nine. And that was kind of a big turning point for me because they, Chris and Sean and Sarah did like a little workshop prior to their, their set that day. And I got to, that's where I met them all for the first time. And Chris signed my festival program, Let's Jam Sometime. (laughs) And I was like, well, now I have to get good enough to jam with Chris Thiele. Yeah, setting the the bar pretty high as a a (laughs) beginner. (laughs) When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> but um, so simultaneously to that, we discovered a Friday night bluegrass jam. Um, okay. And thinking back on this, like it's all sort of magical that that like – even the fact that that jam had sort of started right when I was getting into it, like Wimberley is a very magical place. Um, but yes, I was playing with people, you know, my parents' age and older. There weren't really, um, there wasn't really anyone else my age in in Wimberley who was doing it. So it, it took kind of a couple of years later to start going to music camps and festivals around the country to kind of meet other people my own age who were into it. And so was was bluegrass like an obsession for you? Because you because interestingly to me, like when I talk to Sarah and and other like really young awesome play like blue, bluegrass players, uh, you know they they started off in their professional careers as like bluegrass musicians. And where it, whereas it seems to me, unless there's like some recordings lurking around of you that I'm not aware of, you never really did that. Like you were immediately basically writing your own material and not playing any traditional stuff. Like was a, was bluegrass a huge thing for you or was it just something that you were kind of into among other things? Um, it, well, that's a good question. Um, it sort of just felt like it always existed around Every, everything else I was doing. But I mean, I, it definitely was the launching pad in the sense that I learned how to, like what it even meant to improvise a solo mm-hmm. from going to this weekly Friday Night Bluegrass Jam. Like I wasn't, okay. you know, I, I took some, there, there's a, one of my first teachers early on was this guy, Billy Bright, who still lives in Wimberley. Um, Oh, and I had seen him play with Peter Rowan in Austin. And I think that's how we found out that he lived in Fisher, which is the town over from Wimberley. And he's this great mandolin player. So there were a couple of like, you know, things like that, that was really kind of lucky and special. But in general, the the majority of my learning was at the Bluegrass Jam on Friday night and this sort of like low key and literally behind a catfish restaurant um, okay. called Charlie's. And so in that sense, like it, it was huge for me um, in those early years. And, you know, most of the, one of the first camps that kind of music camps that I went to was Rocky Grass in Colorado. My parent, my parents are, were both teachers, so they had the summers off. So it was possible for us to like all drive up there from Texas and like go to this camp. Um, and all of those memories of those camps are so bluegrass oriented in the sense of like just jamming with friends and like sitting down in a circle and like right. playing. But it was, it's, it's funny because bluegrass is such an interesting term. Like it was bluegrass, but it was also like new grass and like all the stuff that Nickel Creek was doing and yeah. kind of, it, there was always this interest in like music in general. And I never, I never felt like I was just, interested in bluegrass but that was definitely like the launching pad for it in between the bluegrass jams where you were learning all that stuff were you at home learning mandolin stuff off yes records and yes stuff? so who were the, what yeah. were the big big ones for you like the hallmark tunes or artists that you listened to a lot in those days oh like those early days like mike marshall was right kind of the in in a lot of ways like he was my first like true mentor like he mm-hmm. really I, I got to meet he he taught at that rocky grass academy when okay. i my first one that i was 11 
Um, and he was just so kind to me and like took me under his wing and, and yeah, Mike was huge. David Grisman was amazing. Like Tim, I would say that like Mike, David Grisman and Tim Uh O'Brien and Chris Feely were like my four mandolin heroes yeah. early on also ronnie mccurry i mean it's like then you start just opening open the floodgates like, yeah. but but mike um mike and chris and tim specifically became mentors to me to the point that like every time that i would see them at a camp or whenever they would come through austin to play a show they would invite me to sit in right um and that's just so special looking back on it. It It's like, I mean, I learned probably from those sit-ins, which are just like so high pressure because you're just thrown. It's like, all right, here you go. You know, I was probably like 11 or 12. I probably learned more from those um, experiences than maybe anything else, Mm -hmm. you know? I'm not trying to get you to toot your own horn or anything, but were you, uh, were you playing really at a high level when you were 11? Um, I mean, I would say probably like 12, 13 is when, because, you know, I got, I got the mandolin basically when I was 10. And then I would say like for the next, especially like from 10 to 14, it was like mandolin obsessed. Like all, all the time that I I would spend at home, like in my room was practicing the mandolin and like, you know, sitting with my slow downer machine and, Love and it. working on solos and, and, you know, like I said, Billy Bright, my friend would come over and, and give me great lessons. And, yeah. um, and I would be going into Austin, like literally every weekend to see live music and sit in with people. So yeah, those early years were very mandolin centric. And then I would say around the time I was 14, 15 is when I started playing more guitar, playing more banjo and kind of writing my own music. Um, so what about what about the clawhammer banjo style? Was that something that you gradually took up, or were you doing that at the same time? And then also like finger style guitar, like how, what was the progression of getting into those other instruments? Yeah, um, banjo was definitely, I mean, all sort of wrapped up in that the bluegrass jam, the Friday night bluegrass jam yeah. that I went to. Um, you know, I, I like I said, it was very mandolin um, oriented early on, and then just by nature of going every week and sitting around the circle with the same people, I kind of was like, all right, I feel like I have mandolin relatively under my, <laughs> under my <laughs> fingers. Um, I want to try something else. And there, there's this great clawhammer banjo player who would come every week. His name is Bernard Malberg, And he built his banjo, actually the banjo that he oh. would bring every week. And it was an incredible banjo. Um, and, you know, you get to talk in and you're passing around instruments around the circle. And eventually he let me borrow that banjo because he had a couple others. And um, he he taught, I mean, literally I have not taken lessons. Like I everything I know on banjo, I know from Bernard. Cool. Um, and uh, yeah, and then he actually wound up building me um, the banjo that I play now. He's, he, they're called... They weren't called anything at that time, but now um, they're called Burn and Sun Banjos. Very small, small operation he has down in Blanco, Texas. But um, Mm -hmm. I love my banjo so much. Um, Yeah, so that and then guitar, I feel like everything I know on guitar was kind of because my mom played guitar. And so that was I never really played guitar in the bluegrass jam setting. But whenever we were home kind of working on music, playing songs, 
um, she would teach me chords and I, I've, it kind of just self-taught on guitar, I guess, mostly. Were you playing, were, like, were you flat picking guitar or were you getting into finger picking back then? Um, I, I wasn't flat picking, um, or finger picking really. I was kind of just like doing sort of your, like average singer, songwriter, um, chord, chordal progressions okay. behind songs. But, you know, I, I would just based on my, um, I guess dexterity with a mandolin. Like I, I, it, it was, it did come relatively easy for me to sort of pick things out with my ear mm-hmm. on the guitar. Um, it's funny, like something I think about is I know the fretboard of the mandolin, like in a way that I should know the, on guitar and banjo. Like if I'm playing the mandolin, I can tell you like what, you know, if my fingers on the B fret, I, I know that it's a B <laughs> or like, mm-hmm. but with banjo and guitar, I don't know that at all. Like it's oh, totally, I know those two instruments strictly by ear, Okay, um, which is kind of funny, uh, but that's just how it is. Yeah. So how did all that lead into songwriting? Like at what point did you start writing your own tunes? Pretty early on. I mean, I think I probably started with some instrumentals first, you know, since I, I was really into the mandolin uh-huh. initially. Um, and then I think probably because my mom was writing songs, um, I, f- it, it just felt like this natural sort of progression where when you're a kid and th- this thing is happening around you, you sort of assume like, all right, well, that's normal. I guess I'll try that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I think that kind of was initially what happened with songwriting where I would see her uh-huh. typewritten um, lyrics from like when she was in college sort of strewn around the house and think like, okay, like this is how you write a song. She's got this paragraph here and this, this one here and, mm-hmm. and just slowly start, start trying kind of with, with her help um, initially. And then, you know, kind of digging into it more as I got um, further into my, my teens. And was the songwriting process natural for you or like, did you ever struggle like with lyrics or anything like that coming from an instrumental background? I think I, I, I still feel like lyrics are the hardest <laughs> part yeah, yeah. for me. Um, like I, I musical ideas come much quicker than, than the lyrics. Um, but you know, it, it's just, I, I think it, it's nice when you're young because you definitely, I, I, or I didn't have as much of a filter, um, back mm-hmm. then where, or, or I wasn't as kind of judging myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that it was kind of more free flowing almost back then in a way, because it's right. just like, oh, well, basically this is my journal entry. I'll turn it into a song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah. <laughs> And now, do you still, like, when you're writing songs now, do you still, like, completely start with the instrumental part of it and then gradually work up the melody and lyrics? Or have you altered that as you've progressed as a writer? This, yeah, this record was um, kind of different for me in that sense. I, I've, I've um, at least when I've written on my own, I generally almost always start with, the music and then kind of put lyrics to it. Um, but I like, I've never, even in co-writing, I've never, um, just written lyrics without writing the music. So, so an interesting thing that happened this time was that John had expressed 
wanting to do some co-writing um, okay. on this album. And you know, I, I feel like that's kind of a part of his um, role as a producer. Like yep. he, he likes to be involved in, on the writing front. Um, so there were a couple songs on this record where he basically had the music mm. um, written like and, and recorded in, in some instances, or at least like in a rough way. Um, and he would just send it to me and I would just write the, the lyric part of it and not, not come up with the chords or anything. I guess I would, I would be in control of the vocal melody at that point. Mm -hmm. Would you do that together or would he just sort of send you a thing and you would write to his recording? Uh, sometimes we would be in the room at the same time, but generally the bulk of that I would say was, you know, we would finish a day in the studio. He would play an idea for me and send me home with it. And, and then I would, I mean, there were a couple that like, I, I was so inspired by what the the melodies that he had written that like it, it's some of the fastest lyrics have come for me actually really? um yeah like there's there's a song called pay it no mind um which has this kind of tick-tocky guitar part almost where it's it, it's like do 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 and um that sounds like the jaws theme for sure um <laughs> it doesn't on like the an octave an octave too high <laughs> um and yeah i mean like that i wrote basically the whole, all the lyrics like that night. Uh, oftentimes for me, lyrics come late at night. Um, uh-huh. like right, right when I'm trying to fall asleep, super convenient <laughs> yep, sure. timing. Um, that one. And then there was another song, um, orange and blue, which is actually coming out this Friday. Oh, cool. Um, it's the second single. It's a piano driven song. And, um, yeah, I can't, I can't really explain it. It was just like the instant I heard, it was really even the instant he played it for me uh, in the studio. I like had the visuals for what the song should be. It was, it was pretty, pretty special. Um, Like it's, it's helpful to separate them sometimes. It, I I still don't feel like I have a method. It it can come, songwriting can come in all sorts of different ways. Um, I don't like to say that like I do it one way or the other, because it just seems to happen and in different ways every time. Do you, uh, and this may not have an answer across the board, but do you generally, when you're coming up to make a record, do you wait until you have all the material or do you kind of use that as a deadline or do you sometimes even go into projects without having everything written? Like it sounds like on the new one, you were writing stuff as the process was happening, but what about in on past projects? Yeah, this this one was definitely the most, I would say, as it was going, it was sort of... Um, being created as, yeah. as we were going. I, I think I had four finished songs when we started and then we kind of figured out the rest as we went along. Um, I've mostly in the past had everything ready. Mm, everything ready. I think probably because of time constraints, you know, every, mm-hmm. except for undercurrent, like the first three records I was in school for, all right. of those. Okay. So uh, I don't, I didn't feel like I had a lot of um, extra time to sort of mess work, around. mess around really. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that actually was something I think Gary was often, when we would start a record, he'd be like, come, come in with, you know, 20 or 30 songs, you know, and we can pick the best ones. Yeah. And I would always be like, I literally just barely have time to write 12. Like, <laughs> yeah. here you go. And, and this is, you know, so that's, yeah, that, that was another different thing this time around, just kind of going, writing as, as we went along. And, and that was partially because of 
discovering the collaborative Mm -hmm. vibe with John and like figuring that out along the way. So your first record song up in her head that you did that, I don't know how old you were, like 15 or 16, right? I was 17 17. when we recorded it. Yeah. So how did that, like, how did that all come together? Like what brought you from being like a bluegrass kid to the point where you've got all these amazing songs and you're going in to make a record? Yeah. I mean, it, it just, the, the songs were, so let's see here. I, I met Gary Pachosa um, when I was 16 at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. I, because of my time sort of spent growing up at the Planet Bluegrass Festivals, mainly Rocky Grass, as I was mentioning before, um, I was given a a set (laughs) at, at, in 2007, I was 16 at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival no record, like truly, I mean, Craig Ferguson was just like, I've seen this girl grow up in my festivals mm. um, and I'm going to give her a set. And he really kind of took a chance on me and it was a huge turning point in my life to have that sort of big opportunity. And that's where Gary heard me for the first time. And it was from that moment that he asked me. He was just there in the audience? Yeah, he was just okay. at the festival. Um, yeah. uh Hang in, and he. In addition to being a producer and an engineer, he is the A and R um, person at at that time for Sugar Hill Records. So right. you know, it's his job to sort of go to live music and discover people, yeah. quote unquote. Um, so yeah, I mean, he approached me after that performance and invited me to Nashville to record some demos, and and then the following. Spring, I, I was still 16. Uh, I signed a record deal with Sugar Hill, and um, and then that the then I turned 17, and I kind of traveled to Nashville that summer, and in the breaks between, so it was my senior year of high school, wow. um, and you know that at that point I was 17, and I, I had just kind of collected songs that I had started writing when I was like. 13 or 14 and it was just sort of all the songs I had up to date you right. know yeah and another sort of big turning point in terms of songwriting for that record was I bought my um octave mandolin which sort right. of that's taken that's taken on a huge role in your records yes yes and so I think the acquiring that instrument it was like when I bought that um, I had been saving up for it because I, Tim O'Brien had a similar one and I always loved the sound of it so much on his records. And I, I felt that as a mandolin player, to have the ability to play the mandolin but an octave lower to kind of be more supportive of my voice mm-hmm. as a songwriter uh, felt like the perfect thing. So cool. I had been saving and, and found that instrument. And I, I think like the song, Song Up In Her Head, and there, there was like a bunch of songs on that record that just like were written um, because of that instrument. <laughs> yeah. That's that's an important part, I find, in people's careers. You, you know, at some point, usually somebody finds an instrument that's like the thing that really kind of like speaks to them and brings out the best in, in their writing or whatever. And it sounds like that was totally. it. Um, no, yeah, it totally was. So so you did that record in Nashville. Where, where Which studio were you in? Well, it's funny because like Gary and John have a similar situation in the sense that they have home studios. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, Gary um, lives in, in over in West Nashville and has a, a, like, it, basically, I guess it would be a converted garage <laughs> right. um, studio. And it's, it's small. I mean, it's just a control room and one tracking room. And yeah. Um, 
And that's where we made all four of, of my records. So that first one, it's like, I mean, you're a kid and like, I don't know if you'd had any recording experience before, but like all the heavies are on that record. Uh, I mean, what was that experience like, like walking in there and I don't know how live you were tracking it. It sounds like it was, you know, pretty live. Um, what was the experience like for you and like, you know, working with all those people? Oh my God. It was, it was so incredible. It was like, you know, they were all my, the reason that I started doing this in the first place, you right. know, people like, um, well, Chris Thiele, um, Daryl Scott, Jerry Douglas, Bela Fleck, um, bunch of hacks, a bunch of hacks. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, I didn't, I had never been in a recording studio before, so it was, it was a lot of newness. Um, yeah. and actually, you know, a lot of, a lot of it wasn't live. Like a lot of it was, okay. Or, or live together, I guess it would be better to say. Um, a lot of it, what because of the size of Gary's studio, mm-hmm. a lot of the way we would work would be like I would track my part, and then, and then he would be like, I think this person would be great for for this oh, okay. harmony, or you know, yeah. and they would come over, and and so I learned, I think, from doing it that way for that first record. I mean, just to be clear, like while I wasn't really close with a lot of those people as friends at that point I did I did have connections and know them from these festivals and camps that I had been going to so it right. wasn't totally like here's this random girl yeah like we're coming in just like taking a chance on her like they did there was history there you yeah. know yeah. so um but I mean what an incredible opportunity as you know for it, my first time in the studio to be able to kind of record my part and then sit and like watch these different people come in and, and and literally get to observe how they work in the recording studio. Um, you know, it's just, it was like a workshop almost for, for me just to be like, Oh, so this, it, some people like to really kind of get comfortable in their chair and like do a bunch of takes and then they get settled after like the fifth take. Some people don't want to think about it at all. Like they come in and they just like, just kill it on the first thing. And, and, and both of those ways are totally fine. It's like just figuring out what's best for you. I had a sort of a revelatory experience working with Tim O'Brien in the studio where, where he was singing a harmony on a song that I was producing for somebody else. And he, his, I mean, I don't know if, if, if you saw him do this too, but, but his method seemed to be that he would immediately, like so quickly, basically double the, the lead vocal exactly so that he had in his brain the melody of the song exactly as the singer was singing it. And then he'd just, totally. flip, up, he'd just flip up and, and, and do a harmony to that. But his process I found was so interesting that he would like essentially mimic the lead, the lead vocalist and then, mm. and then he'd have the harmony in his head already. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've seen him do that as well. He's, I mean, you know, Tim, I, I learned, I think most of what I, no, on a vocal front from from Tim O'Brien, just uh-huh. singing along to, to his records. It's funny because Chris Steely and I have talked now that we're doing more singing together yeah. on Live From Here, and we love singing together so much. We we were saying recently actually that we think our vo- we hear harmony in a, in a similar way because we spent so much time early on with Tim O'Brien records, right. and that's sort of like our you know, our, um, compass, uh, I guess. Were there any other like moments like that for you where you, you saw one of those people that you kind of worshiped working in a way that you hadn't experienced, like say at a, in a bluegrass jam or, or playing with them on stage where, where the studio took on kind of a different form? 
Yeah, well, actually, an incred- it wasn't for one of my records, but just the nature of sort of being living at Gary's house on and off when I would be making these records, um, which that also is like crazy to think about on now as an adult, like he really, I mean, Gary believed in me so much and the fact that he even just like let me sort of live at his house because he knew it would be like, my parents felt better about it because I I wasn't old enough to rent a car or like stay in a hotel by myself. (laughs) It's like, he really, um, was just so generous, um, for so many years. Um, but what I was going to say is like, just the nature of being there and, seeing other other people would just drop by the studio for different projects that Gary was working on um and I would be there and I would get to sort of just like hang out and someone who Gary is close with is Dolly Parton and so she came by one time I remember because there's a photo of I don't remember why Aoife was I think Aoife was in town for something else but the photo is me and Aoife and Alison Krauss and Dolly Parton. And <laughs> it's like this amazing photo. I mean, I, I must have been 18 in it or something. And Aoife looks very young as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, I can't I can't even remember what Dolly was coming over to sing on. But just wow, I, I was just sitting on the couch. Aoife and I were like both sitting on the couch just watching her track this vocal, a harmony vocal, I think, for another project. And it was just the most confident um musical extension of a, a of a body that you could possibly imagine like it, she just just so natural it just soared like her voice just soared out of her you wow. know and and it, I don't remember it taking very long <laughs> like yeah, I, yeah. I remember it was just sort of like all right let me sort of get my make sure it's sounding good in my headphones um and then boom you know a couple yeah. takes later Done. So that was really special. Um, and just in general, I feel like there was a lot of that, like people just dropping by the house and um, and even not not necessarily to see someone in, working in the studio, but just just the nature of people stopping by and sharing stories. Um, I feel like you, you learn a lot from from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you tell me how, like, we don't have to get into the specifics of all your records, we don't have time to do that, but, but as they go, things shift and change and and probably in your mind things changed as you made those records with Gary and uh I'd love to hear just like how cuz you uh you were at school for um it was was it contemporary voice improvisation is that am I right Yeah contemporary improvisation is technically the name of the um the program there So so how did that I mean that must have had a huge impact on your writing and recording process like did that affect the progression of the records for you? Oh, oh yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that sort of in combination with um, having the chance to collaborate with other musicians my age, you know. So, so yeah. that first record was really me, and then all my heroes, <laughs> kind right. of. Um, yeah. And then, you know, right right after that record came out, I moved to Boston and started college, and had the chance to. Um, make music regularly with people my own age. And um, something that was born out of that was um, I played for many years in my live show with Alex Hargraves and Nathaniel Smith um, with violin and cello. And so that kind of started becoming more of, I feel like the base, the basis of my records where as opposed to just building it around 
just me. I was kind of building it around this trio sound. Um, and so I think it's funny because the, the second record was kind of starting to go in that direction, but it's still, it still just kind of felt like an extension of the first record where it was like mostly me with a lot of guests coming in. It was like by the third record, build me up from bones. I was like, I want this to be a trio record, (laughs) you know? And so I wanted it to to be more stripped down and sort of mostly whatever instrument I was playing, um, fiddle and cello and kind of have those be the the basic building blocks of it so in those days were you strictly touring as that trio cello and violin and you yeah i mean that was my that was you know those they were my touring band (laughs) and i mean that's a strong concept too and it's it's got a really like any live stuff i saw a thing from like i never saw a concert of yours in those days but the i saw an austin city limits and a few other things and like it was a really awesome trio but was that a concept that you had originally or did you just sort of fall into playing with those guys like were they boston guys or what's the scoop um, there yeah i don't i don't think it was like a, a concept i had I, th- I think it was more just like the the people that i mean alex was someone that i had known going f- like all we were at all the same music camps too, like the mandolin symposium and okay. rocky grass and um IBMA, you know, like all, all, all that stuff. And then Nat sort of came along a little bit later and. Cello instead of bass is like a, that's a conscious decision, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think Nat is this magical player where he's, he was bringing that sort of the low end while also being such a rhythmic player. He, you know, he's very like, he's into that whole chopping mm-hmm. thing that, that kind of, I think. I sort of associated a lot with like Casey Dreesen and Daryl Langer yep. on the fiddle. And then it sort of transferred over to the cello um, through like Rashad Eggleston from Crooked, Crooked Still. Still. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so Nat sort of had like, even though it wasn't bass, it still was providing a low end aspect yeah. while also being rhythmic. And yeah, it was really, really, it, it's funny because I, if I remember correctly, I think that the Austin city limits was one of our first gigs together as that trio. Like we oh, really? hadn't really um, toured a lot. I had toured with, with Alex and uh, a bass player, Sam Grisman up till that point. And then Nat kind of came along and, and then, yeah, we, that was one of our first gigs. Wow. That's a <laughs> as good that first trio. Game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So by the time you did build me up from bones, that was, I don't, did that come out in 2016 maybe or? Something? No, that was 2013, and 13. then uh, Undercurrent came out in 2016. Oh, right. So, yeah. but Build Me Up from Bones has like it. You can hear that it's starting to get like a bit more adventurous. You're doing like vocal overdub. There's some like kind of trippy vocal effects on it too that are really cool. And um, there's some drums on that record. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, was that like were you kind of pushing to get into some new stuff? I feel like I was really into Radiohead at that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, um, point in time um so yeah like you know it's it's sort of like every in that sense it's like every record is sort of inspired by the music you're listening to at that time in a way um and is that the album that had tourist on that record is that the one where you did that was that on building up from bones or follow me down i think that's on follow me down okay um so the prior one because we yeah we recorded that with the punch brothers in new york um I'm pretty sure <laughs> they're all sort of, sort of um, blurring together at this point. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, like I, I think I think maybe some of the sonic exploration aspects of Build Me Up From Bones was maybe the combination of what I was saying where I I was wanting it to be more um to kind of work with less, uh, do more with less, I mm-hmm. guess. Like where, whereas before it was sort of like not feeling prohibited at all on on having guests come in and just sort of like endless amounts of of musical guests and this was like let's be in control a little bit more of like the basic building blocks and then we can be a little more experimental on the like what we do after that (laughs) right right and so was that you wanting to do more like stepping out and doing more adventurous things like with your voice and stuff or was gary kind of pushing you in that direction too um, I think it was both, you know, okay. I think it, because we had been working together on, on all the records, we were, we were kind of growing together in that sense. So I think right. we, we were wanting to, to grow in ways, um, like at the same time almost to sort of like push ourselves beyond what we had done together up until that point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, that was probably cause that if that's 2013, I mean, that Build Me Up From Bones was maybe the most influenced by my time at New England Conservatory. Um, And so, yeah, just looking for different sounds and, and options. And then, and then undercurrent too, like same kind of thing. Like it's definitely, it's definitely a progression in, in a lot of ways. Although there's like really sparse stuff on that record too. That's really beautiful. Um, Like early morning light comes to mind as like something that's basically a solo piece. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, thank like, you. As far as your instrumental arrangement on a solo piece, were you bringing those in like fully formed, or was that taking form in the studio? That like early morning light was definitely early morning light and take another turn and yeah. um like oh gosh I'm blanking on everything to hide um like those three are just solo guitar and voice yeah oh Jack- Jacqueline too um those were all fully formed. And I definitely went into that record with a very strong sense of like, I want this to be much more stripped down. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, we've we've gone the route of like in having other people be a part of this. And like the songs I was writing, that's sort of what I, I was saying about the song, like the songs on the new record, I was writing them with the drums in mind. You know, you're yeah. I'm sort of like hearing things as I'm writing the songs. And with Undercurrent, I wasn't here. Like it, it, the songs felt like this just needs to be how they live on, on a recorded mm-hmm. uh, format. And yeah. so, and that's sort of what I was saying about the drum, like the drum disagreement with, with Gary on that, like, you know, and that, that was something, a road that we just had to go down to understand. Sometimes you gotta was, do it. You gotta go you down gotta that do road. It. Yeah. yeah. But with that, with that being said, I was, I was pretty certain, like I knew going into that record that I wanted it to be sparse and have like a ton of space. Can you just tell me a bit about the different approach that you've noticed with being your own band leader and like having your own solo records and stuff and then going into the project I'm with her? I'd love to just hear a little bit about that that project and how, I mean, it must have been kind of freeing in some ways, but was it also uh, more work, like working with three vocalists and just how was that process of making the See You Around record? Oh my gosh, just just a hundred percent positive. Honestly, I I mean, I like I said, I think it, it when I think about making four solo records in a row, basically while also being in school, um, 
it was a lot. It was a yeah. lot of work. I mean, yeah. it was kind of just like a non It was sort of, I guess if I think about it from the point of when I met Gary at Telluride when I was 16, um, it was just like 10 straight years of nonstop um, creativity on a solo front. Yeah. Um, and of course, like your collaborators, like all these guests and everyone, you know, not and Alex, like everyone that I'm touring with, they bring so much to it. But at the end of the day, like I, I was writing the music and, and all that stuff. Um, it was a lot. And I was really ready to, um, kind of just like have some fun <laughs> musically. A bit, yeah. Yeah. Like not, not that none of that was fun. It just, um, I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like I wanted to kind of share right. the, the work with some other people and it just, they probably felt the same too, right? A hundred percent. I think yeah. like, even though, like I was saying, our, our record was delayed two years, um, because of scheduling, like, it came at the perfect time um, for all of us. I think just all the different projects that, that they're involved in. Um, I think we were all really ready to kind of have this new team that we could pour ourselves into and feel like equal part, equal parts of. And um, yeah, I, I don't think that I would have, if I'm with her, if that didn't kind of come along for me, I think like, I almost wonder if I would, it would just be now anyways that I would be putting out a solo record. Like, I, I, I needed some time to sort of get re-inspired. Yeah, so so in a way, it, it didn't feel like more work at all. I mean, it, it, like, I'm with her, What we worked so hard, <laughs> but it was... Did you guys write all those uh, songs together, or were you bringing individual tunes to each other? Um, we wrote all the songs together. Oh, I, wow. I mean, that's I, cool. Obvious. I mean, definitely, like they all started with little snippets that each of us would bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Um, like they weren't all just we weren't sitting in the room, and they all started out of the room that we were all sitting in. Like mm -hmm. I would be like, okay, here's a verse and the beginning of what I think could be a chorus, and mm -hmm. we would sit down and like finish it. But they all like all the songs on that record felt very equally um written um it was cool. it, and that was we went we had like four days in los angeles um where we went where sarah lives um was that with mike elizondo is that who you worked on that no 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 actually that this so this is all pre-elizondo oh, okay. um this was we worked with ethan johns oh wow. on, okay right on that first record. Uh, but, but Ethan didn't write any of the music with us. And we had actually, we wrote all of the music mostly in Vermont. Um, we, we felt that it was important for us to be on, as Sarah Watkins referred to it, neutral ground, <laughs> um, <laughs> to sort of, uh, you know, if you're in your, your city or your it's town, mindset. it's a different mindset and you're yeah. kind of being pulled in all different directions. And it was, bonding for us not only on a musical level but on a, like a friendship level just to be able to like hang out just the three of us for eight days straight yeah. and realize that like we just love eating all the same food and watching all the same things and like we're yeah it was like such a strong friendship that was sort of created in those eight days of writing that record um yeah and so all that whole record was totally written before we um went to england to record it with ethan 
And why, why England? That's just where he's set up and you went to him? Yeah, we went to him. Cool. Um, and it was kind of continuing on our trying to find neutral ground right. <laughs> um, journey. Um, and yeah, we, we kind of settled on like really wanting to work with Ethan, I think, because we knew him as someone who was really great at just capturing something that is our already exists and, and right. putting it on a record and, and not really like we, we just wanted that first record to be us in the truest, rawest um, sense and not, a, not a bunch of bells and whistles covering yeah. it up. Um, and Ethan, did Ethan play on it too? Ethan played a couple of things. Like he played a, like a pump organ on one thing. You can kind of hear it on the very last song, um, the Gillian Welch song, hundred miles. Mm. Um, it kind of, comes in halfway through uh i'm trying to remember he didn't it, mostly it's just that that was the the most live recording process i've ever been like we were literally sitting in one room facing each other in a triangle no headphones for the whole record um, for for the whole record yes yeah. nice. i love doing it that way <laughs> that's cool. yeah it was it was crazy i mean like i said these songs had only existed for three weeks so we were yep. still kind of like learning the songs um and were you sort of producing each other in any way or were you would you just sort of like let everyone come up with their own harmonies and parts um i guess you could say we were producing each other it, it just felt um very in terms of what sarah and Eva and i kind of uh were looking for in each other, I think we were all very much on the same page. So yeah. that, that was a, a nice thing to discover early on that like, I think all three of us were so just delighted to be working together that yeah. there wasn't really much ego going on. Like if it, it was very easy to be like, no, like that, that harmony part actually doesn't sound good there. And just be like, okay, like moving on, <laughs> you yeah. know, like I, and I think maybe that some of that comes from, the fact that like if an idea doesn't work for that band, all of us have other places that the idea could maybe live. You know, yeah. it doesn't sort it doesn't have the to be the, the end of exactly. I've probably taken up enough of your time. Um, thank you so much for t- telling me about all this stuff. Um, so when things do go back to normal, I assume you're going to tour the new project. Uh, <laughs> what, what's the pl- like? Are you going to have a new kind of band situation, or what? Like, how are you going to do it live? Yeah, I mean, well, it's this definitely has kind of come in the middle of figuring all that out. Um, right. But I, I am going to tour um, with drums for the first time. Uh, is my is my plan? Um, Exciting. My, my my good friend John Fadham, who I've gotten to know in in kind of the Brooklyn music scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so like drums, bass, guitar, and me um, is sort of the plan because I feel like that's what will, you know, basically. Bass and guitar, like acoustic versions or electric versions? Uh, both. Both. Cool. Both for both. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like that's that's kind of the plan. That's that's how these songs sort of live, and that's how I want them to continue to live in a live setting. Yep. Um, and you know, I, I think it'll actually be fun to we, before all this went down. Like had a couple of rehearsals where I was even kind of working on incorporating drums into some of my older material in like a pretty subtle way, but in a way that sort of was breathing new life into the music for me. Um, so yeah, it'll, I've, I really haven't been able to have any rehearsals, um, 
on with those guys, sadly, because uh, because all this just happened while I was in the midst of figuring out the band. But yeah, I'm whenever this does, um, whenever things get back to normal, I'm, I'm excited to, to tour this music. I'm, I'm very, very um, proud of this record and can't wait for people to hear it. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to hear the rest. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate you. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I loved chatting with you. It was great. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. Take care. Have a good day. Thank you for listening, folks. That was my conversation with Sarah Jarose. I hope you enjoyed it. I will be back in two weeks for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.